Morning, everybody. Hey, we are, uh, you probably noticed we're a little bit over on time, but we felt like the uh, report from India and just praying together was important. We haven't had time to do that as much with the summer. So we're, uh, I guess we're moving into the longer services before the summer's over. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, it's part of being together. We are in a series on prayer. It's called Great Prayers, and we're looking at the humble, most humble prayers in the scripture and some of the greatest you know, leaders of the scripture. And then we're, we're engaging with them to see how they prayed so that we can pray with them and like them and learn from them because we want to know how is it that we communicate with the God of the universe? This is something we struggle with. We don't know how to do it. And so uh, all the, we're going to look at seven or eight prayers through the course of the series. But Carrie, thank you for reading uh, earlier. Uh, so you got oriented to the passage, and you've seen the story of Nehemiah and his, his prayer. Uh, we're going to be seeing this situation unfold with Nehemiah, where his brother and uh, some other folks come over from Jerusalem, and they tell him this news about Jerusalem, and it just devastates him. One of the reasons that it devastates him is that uh, the city of Jerusalem and that the temple and all of that, their place in God's place was a... Uh, was critical to who they were. And so it, it just, it brought him low. And I, I was trying to think of what is this like in our world? How do, we, uh, how do we identify with something like this? What's that piece of, of understanding? I think one example would be maybe if you love Obi Joyful, if you've been a part of this church for a short time or a long time, if in 15 or 20 years you were to be away from here and then hear that the church had just disbanded, the building was dilapidated, snow had caved in some of the roof, and it was just rotting away and mildewed and all that, you would be disappointed, right? We'd be sad. I mean, I pictured that. I was like, man, that's really a sad thing to think of. We want to go the complete opposite direction. Well, in a really microscopic way, that is, uh, if we just multiply that, we see what it is that Nehemiah was feeling. He was just weighed down by this. And here's the thing about it. This is, this is probably the main point today is that Nehemiah is faced with a problem that he cannot fix. It's beyond his ability to correct the situation and he's weighed down about it. This is a serious thing to him. There's nothing he can do. I'm, I'm going to guess that some of you are in situations like that. Some of you have areas of your life where there's something that's been brought before you, something that's in your life that you cannot fix, and it's a struggle, and you're suffering from it. You're being brought low by it. And so how do we go to God in situations where we have an impossible problem? Because he has an impossible problem to fix. So what do we do? How do we follow this roadmap, I guess you might call it, that Nehemiah lays out for us in his prayer? So we're going to unfold that. Uh, so four points that we're going we're gonna to see as we walk through this. One is the pain there's four Ps, actually, so it's going to be really easy. Uh, well, there's the problem. There's five Ps. But there's the, the pain the pain that he is facing, the position that he is in, the position that he comes from to speak to God. What is that position? The promises of God, the word of God that he knows that he's going to engage with God, and the plea that he makes. He'll, at the end, he's going to make a plea. He's going to tell God what he wants. So, the pain, position, promises, and the plea. So let's talk about this pain for a minute. When he hears this news, uh, he is brought to his knees. He says, for days I'm, I fell down, I wept, and I mourned. Now, 
I, I can't think of a time in life that I have been brought to that kind, like days of mourning. I've had some times where I've been like up sick to my stomach with grief over a situation. But many of you have been in those places where for days that's what you have experienced and what you feel. I think that there is a, an intent, a really cool common ground that we can have with, with Nehemiah in that this problem that brought him to his knees was too big for him to, to wrestle with. It was, it was so big that it pressed him down. It depressed him. It, uh, night after night, it kept him awake. He was unable to eat. That's what Nehemiah felt many of us have been or are going through situations like that. And if you're not, you will. So I don't want to... I don't want to be uh, morbid or dig too deep if, if I can help it, but I just want to ask you to, to think about maybe a place in your life where there is something that you're wrestling with. It is just beyond your control. You cannot fix it. You cannot bring enough to bear to, to correct the problem, and you've got, you're, you're stuck. And Nehemiah had some pretty high barriers to doing anything about this problem. So for one thing, did you notice at the end of the passage, the last thing he says is, now I was the cupbearer to the king. That means he was the wine taster. That means that Nehemiah was the least valuable person in the entire kingdom because the whole point of his existence was to to die for the king if somebody tried to poison his wine, right? You don't don't put your most valuable player in the wine taster job, okay? So it has to, the, the one thing he must have had going is that he was trustworthy. You know, he was the guy who was going to, to, uh, be worthy of this, uh, and it, how, you know, how long did, did they just wait? Five minutes, 15 minutes? How did I go to just sit there and see if he died? I don't know. Uh, so he doesn't have a lot of resource to bring to this. He, he has a connection occasionally in the presence of the king of Persia. And what, what this is, this, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is the man that he serves. And that king is over Jerusalem, okay? So all of this is under the Persian empire, and there's devastation in the, in the nation of Israel. The walls are torn down. He's absolutely, as you heard, he's absolutely upset about that. But he doesn't have the resources to, or authority, or political power, or anything. He's not, a, he's not an architect. He's not a builder. He's, none, he's not a general. He's a wine taster. Well, maybe that's, some people make a lot of money being wine tasters, but he's the guy who dies, right? He's expendable. Uh, and here's the thing. One of the things about the pain that comes into our lives around situations that we can't fix is that those are the times when we're most directed to God, right? So there's a certain joy in a thing that we cannot fix because it's the one place that we go in life that sends us to the one person who can take care of it, right? Most of the other time, we're like a scrambling around, I can fix this, I can coordinate, I can bring resources to bear, I can do stuff, whatever, I fix it. But when we're to that point where there's nothing we can do, then we have to turn to God. And that's what's happening with Nehemiah. He has to turn to God to find the solution. You know, I I have to say, right as I was about to start studying this passage to share it with you all, I was uh, reading a bunch of emails and making these lists about this expansion program that we're in and how this is all going to happen. And there's so many I's to dot and so many barriers to overcome. And you know, we got this, I came up in the driveway the other day and there's a new meeting with the public, 
you know, in public meetings in Crested Butte, if you read the paper. So, you know, I'm like, oh, getting weighed down. And I, I came to this and I was like, you know what? I don't know why I am feeling concerned about this. This is God's thing. He, he's going to do what he's going to do. And uh, I'm, I have the privilege of being in a spot that I can't fix this stuff. So all I can do, and all we can do is just turn to him. And that's an, that's an incredible place to be. That's, that's kind of the, uh, the pain that we share with Nehemiah that drives us and draws us towards, towards God. I think uh, it's been said that you know, pain is the megaphone that, that calls us out and pushes us towards him. So this pain is the first step in the process of him coming before God with this problem. And then the position that he's in. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. That all of the, the prayers that we're going to look at, the different people praying, all of them come from different situations, but almost to a one, one of the key parts of their communication with God is lifting him up and knowing that he is above all things, that he is first and foremost. So in this case, he starts off his, his communication with God and he says, you are the God of heaven. He puts, he, God doesn't, wasn't uh, unaware that he's the God of heaven. But for us, when we're communicating with him, that is the place that we put him. And we repeat that and we say, you are the God of heaven. You are above all things. This is a great place to start when we're bringing him something that is beyond our control. And then he does another thing. He says, uh, not only are you the God of heaven, but you are, but I am your servant. And the people that need you in that town in Jerusalem are your servants. And he says it eight different times. It's only like, seven verses, but he says, we're your servants seven times. He is, he's lifted up God and he's put himself in that place that is uh, um, really the lowest place, the least amount of authority. And he belongs to the one who is over all things. Now in a egalitarian liberal community, uh, some, if you were to say, oh, it's, it's so wonderful to be a servant or a slave to God, that's not going to go over very well. Nobody wants to be a slave. That's just not fair, right? But what that, what that statement says is that we don't understand what it means to be a servant of the one true God, the God of heaven. Because the whole story of the Bible is his dogged pursuit and extreme sacrifice in order to bring us into relationship with him, right? That's the kind of servant we are, loved, adopted, reached out to, and given the freedom to choose or to not choose him. You see what that kind of servant is? Now, Nehemiah only has a part of that picture. He can only see a little bit of it, but that's the truth about the kind of servant that we are. And when we put ourselves in that place, what it means is that I am valued at the price of the life of Jesus Christ. We know that as believers today. So when we come to him and say, you're above all things and I'm your servant, that's a pretty beautiful place to be. Uh, Here's his prayer. I want to, want to read this to you as part of it uh, in 6b. He says, Hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which they have sinned against you, even as I and my father's house have sinned. So here's a really interesting piece of the process that he goes through. Not only does he lift up God, not only does he call himself a servant, but he brings in this piece of confession, of opening the pathways of communication and confession with God. And I think if we're in, in uh, a place 
where we cannot move forward, where we are stuck, one of the most significant things we can do is confess and open up that communication pathway with God. Let me maybe illustrate this. Uh, about two weeks ago, I think, maybe more, Claire and I had a uh, disagreement, we'll call it. And uh, it was just right before bed, so it was like 7 o'clock. Okay. Um, it wouldn't be bad, would it, for some of us? Okay. But no, it was just like 9 or something, I don't know. And uh, so we had this disagreement, and both of us are like, you know, if you're married or have a serious relationship, you know when you get to that point, it's like, you know. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm just going to forget this. I'm going to bed. And so I'm like, in, I'm like feeling extremely immature, you know, more immature than usual. I go, I crawl in bed, turn off the light. I'm just lying there. I'm just like, oh. But what I'm really mad about is that I'm going to have to say I'm sorry. I'm going to have to confess and say, this is what I, I'm sorry. And that was wrong. And I'm acting like a four-year-old and that kind of thing. And the thing is, I also know that she is feeling the same thing. I've known her for 20 or 30 years. So, you know, I know that she feels the same way. And because it was her fault, um, <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, she did apologize. She just confessed and apologized first. And then I did. And then we, it still wasn't like lovely. We, we were like, okay, you know, but you know, if you're in a relationship that if you don't have that, if you don't open up that communication through confession and an apology, then there is going to be a barrier that is built, right? That's just how it goes. And we are in relationship with God in a similar way that, not that he's confessing to us, but we talk to him and say, God, I, I, let me just lay bare. You already know, but let me lay bare what's going on and open up that pathway of communication. So when we're trying to get in the position that Nehemiah was in when he was speaking to God, there's that glory to God, that place that we have to be where we trust that his glory and his good is above what we think the solution ought to be. And then we, uh, then confession can be a piece of this that is uh, a powerful component in communicating about what's really uh, going on. And, and here, one last thing about that. Somehow our choices matter to God. Somehow the things that we do matter to the God of the universe. So much so that there is a, necess- a need for us to confess. I mean, if you just kind of zoom out and think about that for a minute, that's pretty powerful. To be a, the servant whose confession matters, that's huge. And that's who we are. Our choices matter to him. And so confession is a beautiful step that we can take. So we have pain that brings us to the point where we can't fix it. We turn to God, and if we get in that right position, I think that's uh, a, a beautiful model of following the roadmap that Nehemiah laid out. And then the promises, this, this P word, promises, is the idea that Nehemiah knew the word of God. He knew the promises of God. In verse 8, he says this, uh, and I'll just read the first part of it. He says, Remember the word, God, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, And then he goes on for two or three verses to to say back to God what it is that God said to Moses. And what he he conglomerates several different, merges these verses together because he knows the word of God. Uh, Y'all, if you're somebody who's trying to follow Jesus, you and I need to spend time in the word. 
if this is the place where you get all of the word that you get, you are going to be seriously malnourished. Okay? Okay, what I'm giving you is processed food. If you're from Crested Butte, you walk by the hot dog, the Oscar Mayer hot dog aisle. You do not go in there, right? Because you want to get to the original, the organic, the D. You want to have the thing that's like the cows right there. You know, <laughs> this, this is how, and the cow has to have like the grass that was watered by the creek. But, you know, so it goes all the way back. We understand the need to get in the place where we have the original and we're dealing with it ourselves. And y'all, I'm telling you my interpretation. I'm giving you this information, but we have got to be in the word of God. We've got to find time, read it, get people around us, do whatever it takes to be in that place. And it's ironic that uh, Nehemiah is praying the way he is. He reminds God actually of the fact that if we disobey you, then you're going to scatter us like the dust, right? At the same time, he says, please forgive us for disobeying you right? We are exactly the people that you don't want, that you are struggling with, that have rejected you, that know who you are, and we reject you. Story of my life, right? But he says, he says, however, just remember, God, that you said if we turn to you, that you'll restore us, and you'll bring glory to your name through that happening. It's because he knows the word of God. See, when we know the word of God, it, al- it aligns us with what it is that he's doing. Uh, when my kids were little, if they came up and said, hey, dad, can we play, you know, in the street, you know, in the highway or something, I would, of course, say no, right? Obviously. Well, as a little child, maybe they don't know that. But as a person grows in relationship with the person who they're uh, a servant of, then you start to understand that there's some things you don't ask for. For. You don't want to do it. So when we align our prayer with who God is and what we know about him, we're definitely moving towards, like Nehemiah, the place where we are going to be pleased with the result of what we're praying for. There's a passage in 2 Timothy. It's uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, All scripture, all of the word of God is breathed from him. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction, for training and righteousness that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we build the word of God into us and fill ourselves with that, it equips us and prepares us for what's coming. Uh, I asked the first service if, they, if anyone had the Red Bull app on their phone, and they all stared at me like you're staring at me right now. So uh, yeah, the Red Bull app is just a place where they have all these videos of the crazy things that the Red Bull athletes do, all right? So every now and then, I get sucked into that. I'll click it, and I'll start looking at this stuff. And one of the things I always migrate to is the uh, rally car racing in Europe. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but rally car racing, in some of the cases, they, they're, they're racing point to point, one car at a time, through these tiny little one-lane dirt.